and ask you to bow in prayer with me. Father, we've just heard sung words like laud and honor, worship, loving hearts, enthrone you. We're here to worship you. We're here to remember that as a baby, you drew men and women around you and angels and wise men from the east. And they all bowed and worshipped. We open our hearts to you tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, tonight we gather to say thank you for the greatest gift ever given. And worship is really, it's really the right thing. It's the right response. It's kind of strange, though, when you think of a baby. I cannot imagine if I brought a baby up here, how many of you would come and actually bow and, and begin to worship this little baby. Now, you, you might come and have a sense of awe over the innocence of a newborn. You might actually come up and, and approach this baby with a sense of wonder at the miracle of life. But honestly... Think about coming up and, and bowing down. And here's a little baby and worshiping a baby. And yet, we're told that three very wise men did just that. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, he records, On coming to the house, these wise men from the east saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped a baby. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. They had worshipped and they worship a baby who has come from God uniquely. One who had actually changed the world and changed lives. Angels, shepherds, and wise men worshipped a baby that the prophets actually foretold about. In fact, many prophets would talk about this baby, but I'm going to read you one specifically from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 and verse 6, where Isaiah sees kind of in the future, and he sees these wise men coming. He says in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, and from all from Sheba will come. Bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Worship is still the right response. Because the world has forever been changed by the birth of this little one named Jesus. God's holy anointed one. The world's trajectory at the time of this birth, its course in a sense was altered because of the birth of this baby. And many, many lives, because of this baby, throughout history, have been transformed and changed as well. 2,000 years ago, three really wise men bowed and worshipped this child for good reason. Imagine a world without this baby's imprint upon it. I want us to take this evening and to kind of think and consider, almost do a, how many have seen Jimmy Stewart's It's a Wonderful Life? You kind of know, what if, imagine if this baby did not come. 
This will be in no way an exhaustive list. It will not be the 30 minutes that I was told, we were told it would take. 20 minutes. I ask you to hang with me for 20 minutes. Listen to what I call an abridged version that should really cause our hearts to respond with a sense of wonder and with a sense of joy. Should cause us to really think through. And, and as I go through this, I will kind of go through the surface and skim to the top because there's a backstory behind every one of these things that are far richer and far deeper. And the hardest thing I had in this message was editing it down to 20 minutes, maybe 25. Anyway, I want us to start by looking for a moment at time in history and the impact of this little baby on time in history. God stands apart from and outside of time. But it would only make sense that if God entered history, he would become the mark and measure of time. The birth and life of Jesus actually changed the way we think about time in history. Do you know why New Year's Day falls when it does on the calendar? Because of Jesus. In Israel, after a child was born, they would begin to count until day eight. On the eighth day, the baby would be brought to the temple, and if it was a boy, it would be circumcised. And at that point, in that time, on the eighth day, the name would be given to the child. So December 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31, and then the eighth day, January 1st. January 1 marks the beginning of the new year because that's the day when the name of Jesus came into the world. It's not just a random fact. It was expressing something that was changing people's very idea of history. It was giving people a sense of hope. God entered history. God was actually, as a result of coming in and marking and measuring history, beginning to show people that history actually had an end. It actually had hope to it. It actually would go somewhere. You, you know, in the ancient world, how they measured time was they would measure it by the reign of a king or a reign of a Caesar or a reign of, of, of a pharaoh or a reign of some monarch. And in some way, you would just talk about, oh, yeah, that reign. But, but history wasn't moving towards any end until one person who is named Jesus, who is the king of all the earth, who had set up his reign that would continue forever and it would mark and measure time. Author John Ortberg writes, in our day, we kind of take it for granted that we expect progress. There's surveys done every year. Do you think life will be better for the next generation than it was for yours? As questions that are asked. Nobody in the ancient world would have done that kind of survey. That question just didn't get asked. Most cultures thought of existence as a kind of endless cycle that just gets repeated. Reality was an endless repetition of ups and downs. Seasons would come and go. And there was no ultimate end to it. But Jesus, as John writes, taught about God's kingdom being like a seed that grows to fullness and maturity. Jesus taught that God is leading history somewhere to a final and glorious end. And that at this point in history, there would be a baby who would be born, who would, in a sense, begin a reign that would never end. And we would mark history by that and measure history by it. This message meant that people would have a future with a hope. The secularized version of this we call progress today. I mean, take it for granted the notion that time should bring progress, but that was an idea the ancient world never shared. Even the creation of the calendars we know it today wasn't just some chronological convenience. It was an actual theological statement that life in the universe is not an accident, not a random cycle, but a story with a storyteller. 
It's a critical event. That which marks and measures time being the birth of a Jewish carpenter who was named Jesus. Jesus lived and died his life in a little region called Galilee. Powerful Caesar, who's ruling in Rome, never heard a hint of his existence at the time. But Jesus was called by one of his disciples, John, in the first century, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. A claim made while this movement was only a few thousand people strong. Which really, when you think about that, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, which it must have sound laughable to a lot of people. But when one looks in time over the impact of this baby, it actually causes skeptics to sit up and take notice. Because the fact remains, 2,000 years after the birth of this baby, every time any human being anywhere on the planet opens a calendar, unfolds a newspaper, boots up a computer, we're reminded every day that Jesus Christ has in fact become the hinge of human history. Even Caesar, mighty Nero, died in the year of our Lord, 68 A.D. No longer was the Caesar the measure of time. Napoleon, emperor of the world, died in the year of our Lord, 1821 A.D. Joseph Stalin, this infamous dictator, died in the year of our Lord, 1953 A.D. And yes, even John Lennon, who claimed equality with God was something he thought he could grasp, died in the year of our Lord, December 1980, a generation Every ruler that's ever reigned, every nation that rises and falls, every person ever born is dated in reference to the life of Jesus. And not only time and, and history, take education and learning. The impact. Think about it. Jimmy Stewart style. This baby shaped education as we know it today. You know, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It was a Jewish tenet of faith. And throughout Jesus' life, he, being a Jew, had this popular title that was given to him. It was rabbi, or it meant teacher. And so this great educator, Jesus, took these words of Moses, and if you, if you note it, he added one crucial element that many scholars fail to appreciate. Jesus taught, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then he added, with all your mind and with all your strength. And to all these people who kind of think in some ways that following Jesus is just a mindless kind of thing where you just got to throw away all that you're thinking until you can only have faith. Jesus is the one who taught his followers to think with their mind with all their strength. And if you just look at the impact of this baby upon the world of education, it's inspiring. When Rome fell in 400 A.D., the followers of Jesus and their communities became the centers for the acquisition, preserving, and transmitting of knowledge. Historian Thomas Cahill wrote in a popular book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, and some people laugh at how the, the Irish. Well, those of you who are Irish know this. It's a great book. It's really a great read. And he details how these communities of Jesus followers in Ireland and then throughout the world had for centuries copied down ancient manuscripts, not just New Testament manuscripts. He and many other historians have noted that the single greatest preserver of pagan classical documents were the followers of Jesus who were convinced that all truth was God's truth. Because we as followers of Jesus, using our mind, love all truth. And we want to learn because loving God as Jesus commanded means using all our mind. And so this great teacher fueled a world of learning. 
The church began to build schools to educate young people, not just anybody, not just the, the, the economic people who had status and ability to do it, not just a certain gender, not just a privileged few, but all people, even the poorest of the poor. And so they built universities, the first one in Paris around 12th century. In the 13th century, they built Oxford and Cambridge. And then universities began to follow in Rome and Naples and Vienna and Heidelberg. And these were all begun by followers of Jesus so that people could love God with all their mind. And they actually came to be called universities because they reflected the idea that in the beginning God created all things. Reality, this universe is not merely some random cyclical accident. God is supremely rational. So that means there is a reality that can be actually studied by which through learning we can glorify God. So they made not multiversities or diversities or random chaosities, but a university to study a universe. And in one area of learning, science specifically, and how that developed and grew, Alfred North Whitehead, some of you college students or some of you will remember in your days of study, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century was asked, what is it that made possible for science to emerge in the human race? And this is his answer. It's the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because if you believe creation was made by a rational God, it will lead to fundamentally different assumptions than if you started with the ancient world's idea at the time of Christ, which was just a random accident of endless cycles leading to nowhere. Now, his Jewish heritage didn't have that, but around the ancient world. One renowned college handbook states this in its handbook. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And this student handbook was of Harvard University, adopted back in 1646. Yale, William and Mary, Princeton, Brown, and others, all but one school started before the American Revolution were founded by followers of Jesus who loved God with all their mind. Plainly, both when you measure our advances in education and science, you must account for the fact that 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America were begun by followers of this uneducated, itinerant, never wrote a book carpenter, which we worship, a called, baby called Jesus. And then if you think about his impact, this little baby's impact on art and literature and music, this baby we call Jesus and the movement he initiated revolutionized the world of arts and language. Again, Jimmy Stewart said, imagine a world, no Dante, whose divine comedy was actually the shaper of modern Italian. Without Jesus, no Martin Luther, whose German Bible became the primary shaper of the German language. Without Jesus, there's no King James Bible, which became the most important source for shaping the language most of you speak today. English. Consider the progression of music, which was birthed by the birth of this baby. How many of you can remember or are aware of even love songs that were before the time of Christ, or even some that were after the time of Christ? We, we just don't have those kind of songs. In fact, a lot of you probably have been surprised. How many of you have seen on the Internet, you know, this whole thing right now that's happening? It's popping up in shopping malls. This random act of culture seen some of those all of a sudden in the middle of the shopping mall there's singing that begins to start and i want you to note something that the song that is being sung the cultural song of beauty is not lady gaga's paparazzi 
It's not the Beatles' Let It Be or Bing Crosby's White Christmas. It's Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. In fact, modern music notation was invented in the Middle Ages by monks, followers of this Jesus, who wanted to be able to spread music that would glorify God and bring worship to this little baby. And so you have Bach and a whole bunch of others, and they write oratorios and sonatas and cantatas and regattas. No, regattas are the sailors. Take art. Imagine a world without the beauty of the Sistine Chapel. No Da Vinci's Last Supper. No Piazza. I could go on and list endlessly art that has been impacted by the birth of this baby who we've come to worship tonight. And imagine political theory. Some of you who are in the poli side. Imagine political theory without Jesus. For those today demanding a separation of church and state, little do most people know that it was Jesus who demanded this long before any culture did. In a time where Caesars and kings and dictators claimed to be God or the voice of God and used it in fiat and arbitrary ways, whatever they wanted to do in order to get their will to be done in some despicable ways, it was Jesus who taught this truth. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Jesus was quite clear when he, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, this political ruler in his day and age in Jerusalem, when he said this truth, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus never taught that our faith is to be isolated from politics, but always taught that God's kingdom was far deeper and more real and to be more influential than any political kingdom that ever rises in this earth. Jesus made it clear that his followers are not of this world, yet in every way they are to influence and guide this world through the values of the kingdom which he brought. His kingdom should inform every political decision and be the check and balance to the unwieldy power of man. From Augustine to Martin Luther to John Locke, Jesus stands behind the notion of limited government, where the state operates in a restricted sphere. And it was Jesus who even had the gall to say that even kings themselves will answer to a higher power when he stood before Pilate. This Jesus we worship touches every aspect of life. What about human rights and dignity? Where do you think the idea of equality in our founding father's national document comes from? You've heard it. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. That all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain rights. It hasn't always been self-evident in the world. When you think of the Goths and the Huns and the Vikings and Nazis and imperialistic Japan, it, hasn't, hasn't, it really hasn't been self-evident in the world. When you think of the caste systems of India, the class systems of Europe, the plight of females in Islam, and the slavery of teenagers, girls, all around the world today. It was Jesus who lifted this veil of inequality through his treatment of all people when he stood over an adulterous woman. When he had lunch with a tax collector, when he had Mary before his feet and taught her as a disciple like a man would be taught. It was Jesus who influenced a racial bigot like Paul to see all people made in the very image of God so that the same Paul would pen these words which would change the world. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then take compassion. The alleviation of suffering 
You know, the weak and the marginalized in the classical world and in the time of Jesus were generally not valued. In the first century, a Roman philosopher named Seneca wrote this, We drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. Jesus, bending low to the ground, stretched out his arms and said this, Let the little children come to me. Jesus birthed a compassionate community. Followers who actually took in abandoned children, even the weak and unwanted children, tossed aside by others. And then on the other end of the spectrum of life, the aged spectrum of life, it wasn't much better in the ancient culture. Widows in Rome, think about this, widows in Rome were actually fined for surviving their husbands because they were a drag on the economy. And Jesus from a cross looks down at John and says, take care of my mom as if she were your own mom. This compassionate community called the church, which worships this baby, taught that one of its first and primary obligations, if you look in the book of Acts, when it was spreading throughout the world, was to care for the poor, the aged, and the widow. And during the early centuries, when two epidemics wiped out nearly a third of the people in Europe, while people were throwing their sick into the street, this strange, compassionate community called the church would bring in the sick, those people not even related to them, And they would care for them at the risk of their own health because this Jesus, this baby, cared for the leper, the deaf, the dumb, the blind, the cripple with compassion. This compassion transformed the world that you live in. Organizations were formed by Christ followers for the very purpose of alleviating suffering in order to show compassion, the same kind of compassion that Jesus showed. One took the symbol of a cross, painted it red, waving it in the air, On a flag, they've become known, the Red Cross. People stand at shopping malls, ringing bells. And a guy named William Booth, a follower of Jesus, whose heart was breaking as he saw the slums and those who were in extreme poverty in the streets of London, began a movement, and this movement today is called the Salvation Army. When you hear the words of World Vision or Food for the Hungry or the YMCA or, the, or you go to hospitals like the Mayo Clinic in Rochester or Sister Kenny Hart Institute in Minneapolis, you will find these institutions of compassion were begun by the followers who are following the way of Jesus. The chair of philosophy at Westmont, Mark Nelson, puts it like this. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. And then I could just stand and say, the lives throughout history who have been touched and changed by this name, Jesus, this baby we worship. I could have people here today get up and stand up and say, there was a time in my life when I was, was, things were a mess. And at that point in my life, at my lowest point in my life, filled with a sense of guilt, feeling the shame and, and, and needing this sense of being forgiven, I stood before this, this God and this encounter with Jesus came and took away all my sins, gave me forgiveness and a peace that I could never explain, a joy that I just couldn't understand. Because this Jesus not only changed the world, He changes lives that are open to Him. So let me conclude by quoting just a few of the most powerful and the most wise. I want you to listen to what they have to say about this baby that some wise men worshipped 2,000 years ago. Napoleon wrote these words. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. 
Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Napoleon writes, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, even this hour today, millions of people would die for him. Everything, he says, in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. I search in vain in history to find this similar to Jesus Christ or anything that could approach the gospel, the good news that this little baby that we worship brought. The Yale historian named Yaroslav Pelikan wrote these words, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in history for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? I want you to think about this. I want you to really think hard on this. It would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world than than Jesus when you consider where he came from and what he did not do. Jesus was born in an obscure village, a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, three years only, three. He was an itinerant preacher and he never wrote a book. He never held a political office and he never attended a university. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. At 33, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. His enemies put him through a mockery of a trial. Condemned, he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while dying, his executioners gambled for his tunic, the only piece of property that he had. Upon death, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And yet 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he's a central figure of the human race. And yet, as this poet writes, all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary man. This baby we have come to worship. Jesus changed the world as we know and live in. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, Jesus, the same Jesus, has changed life upon life over every age, throughout every generation, within family upon family, this same Jesus is here, present tonight, available, wanting relationship with anyone, not just to change the world you've lived in, but to change the very world that you are a part of. That's the greatest gift. That's the greatest gift anyone can receive. 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave this invitation, and it still stands today. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The message paraphrases it this way. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out in religion? Because this isn't about religion. I can tell you as a pastor, the last thing I want to do is be about religion. 
This is about a relationship with the God who loves you so deeply, who is willing to forgive you of every sin, who is willing to come into your life, who is willing to help you in your marriage, who is willing to help you as you seek guidance in your life where you want to be going with your life. This is about a God who wants to connect with you and to change your world. He's touched every facet of this world as we've looked at it. He can touch every facet of your life when you open your heart to Him. And this is this Jesus who says, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Some of you have lost your life. You're trying to grab it in things outside of you and it doesn't happen that way. It happens as you come into a relationship with this one who loved you, created you, made you, has incredible plans for you. I'll show you how to take a real rest, says Jesus. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Jesus says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I just want some of you to think 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. You might have an opportunity tonight to say, Jesus, I really want my life to begin to revolve around you in such a way that you shape and make and and begin to turn things. And you mark and measure this moment for the rest of my life. You have 10, 20, 30 years possibly. And I want you to think about it. If Jesus wasn't in it, what could it be like? I'm going to ask you to pray. Father, I pray. This is a Christmas like no other Christmas. In my heart, there seems something special about what you're doing here. I don't understand all the snow that's fallen, all the things that are happening. And yet, God, there's people here. There's even a few I know who are saying, come into my life. I need rest. I'm going to begin to follow you. I'm going to begin to watch you. I'm going to begin to walk with you. I ask you to partner with me, God. So today, tonight, worship the baby. Receive the greatest gift you could ever give and ever been given to you. We worship you.